Thank you to BetterHelp for supporting Future Hindsight. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash hopeful. Start living a better life today. Also, check out the Muck podcast. Everybody loves to hear about a supposed good guy gone bad. This show explores the dark, seedy, and just downright weird stories in American politics. Be sure to check them out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. I feel as though in this pandemic, we've all become kind of amateur statisticians, virologists, armchair public health experts. At least I feel that I have. And the numbers are mind-boggling. I think we've become desensitized to some degree. We don't even have a true sense yet of the scale of death. But according to Johns Hopkins coronavirus tracker, global deaths have now surpassed 5 million. And of course, the U.S. continues to lead with almost 750,000 deaths. These are official numbers, so in reality, it's much worse. Excess all-cause deaths are 28% higher than the official tally of COVID-19 reported deaths. But even in the swirl of all those numbers, one particular statistic stopped me in my tracks. And that is that two-thirds of the children who've died from COVID in the United States were Black or Latino. You heard that right two-thirds. So we're going to talk about that this week, about the social contract and our bodies, how America's current social contract is affecting our health, our children's health, our reproductive rights, and how those impacts are felt so starkly, so unequally. I'm joined by Professor Michelle Goodwin. She's a Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She also hosts a podcast on the issues at Ms. Magazine. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. We're focusing on the social contract this season, and we're looking toward repairing it, repairing what's frayed or broken in our society. But I think you'd argue that there's a step that we need to do before that, that here in the United States, we are failing to truly look at the brokenness first and foremost. So let's take a look at it. What do you see? COVID-19, this global pandemic, has unveiled institutional and infrastructural inequalities that pre-existed the pandemic. And many of these inequalities that we observe in these times have their deep roots that date back decades that flow into centuries in our country. We have yet to fully address the legacies of institutionalized slavery in this country. We have yet to address the institutionalized inequalities that came out of Jim Crow. That may surprise people, but it's 
the case. And also, when we look at issues of immigration, uh, we have yet to fully address what those inequalities look like over time. While there were priorities for certain immigrant groups to be able to come into the United States, obtain land for free, have colleges built to educate their children, and yet instances like the PAGE Act and others uh, that impose barriers and obstacles for people who would be Asian, who would want to immigrate lawfully into the United States. Many people have no idea that until the mid part of the last 20th century, there were significant obstacles to Asian Americans being able to gain citizenship, be able to immigrate lawfully into the United States and more. So these legacies live with us, even if they're not talked about. They're in the kind of core and bone marrow and blood of our nation. Yes, that history runs so deep, so long for so many centuries. And frankly, I think sometimes a lot of people don't know where to start. Like, where do we start to untangle it, right? Yeah, it's such a great question. And really, we've been on the pathway of resisting being educated about these issues. And we see that right now in the censorship of books uh, in the United States. Uh, We see this with the politicization of critical race theory. Uh, We see school boards taking action to fire teachers and superintendents who speak about race in the classroom. And at the same time, we've seen the threats of physical violence against school board members uh, who say, well, we shouldn't be censoring uh, books that are written by Rosa Parks or books that are written by Dr. King. And this is where we are. And we have a legacy of denying, cabining away, and really closing the closet door on critical aspects of our history that would enlighten us and that could perhaps build empathy amongst all Americans to be able to tell our many different stories. Right. I think one of the biggest things that is missed here uh, when you think about the history is... um, that these things affect everybody at large. When we think about the ways in which health inequalities affect us all, decades ago, and even now, there's the stereotype that when there is a global pandemic that it's caused by people of color, and the only people who could possibly be harmed by it are people of color. Well, we saw this in the United States with stereotypes that smallpox could not be contracted by white people, that only black people could contract smallpox. Well, this then resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of white people who did contract smallpox and who died from it. But that's one of the ways in which racial stereotypes end up harming us all. So I read your law review article uh, from the beginning of this year that you co-authored with Dean Chemerinsky. And you laid out the government's failure to uphold its side of the social contract its responsibility around public health. What do you think were the biggest failures in response to COVID? I'm so disappointed by the failure to collaborate internationally with those who are in epidemiology, uh, those who engage in political uh, policymaking, the failure to collaborate with members of Congress on uh, COVID, 
the failure to effectively collaborate with state lawmakers and to do all of this seamlessly at a time before we actually had vaccines. To give some further light to that, if we're just thinking about how do we appropriately establish a system where we're able to address COVID. Well, during the Obama administration, there was H1N1, Zika, Ebola, and other kinds of health threats. Now, Americans could easily forget that because things were just so seamless. The Obama administration was collaborating with the World Health Organization, with other leaders around the world. There were efforts taking place and information being shared with members of Congress. There was also collaboration and work with the uh, CDC. And that work was critically important, allowing the CDC to lead in the best ways possible based on epidemiological data and evidence, based on public health and science, and equipping these various branches of government to be able to do their work based on their expertise. We did not see that during the Trump administration. Instead, what we saw was the political branch of government leading the conversation about health and putting to the side people who were knowledgeable about health and science. There wasn't the establishing of full-time people to be employed by government to work specifically on this. So what did it all lead to? It led to the failure to have a seamless web of connectivity between states once vaccines were available. It resulted in individuals being able to get COVID cards that are easy to duplicate for people who actually have not received the vaccine. It's led to a system where it's very difficult to know if you got vaccinated in one state, that if you go to another state, that the card that you present is actually a valid card because there's no way to just tap into a system that's easily available to check and see that, yes, that person has been vaccinated. But the infrastructure that would be necessary to do that is still a long way coming. And then, of course, we leaned on essential care workers, but did not always treat people who were providing essential care uh, the status of really being essential in our society. Instead, those individuals were often treated as if they were expendable. I mean, let's not forget that it's during that time that Breonna Taylor horrifically died in a hail of bullets, and she was an essential care worker. I I could go on about these various... These various failures, things that were just simply obvious in which an organized government should have been able to take care of. Right. Well, I think the previous administration suffered from so many of those failures because, of course, it stacked its cabinet with people who were incompetent and really were there because of their um, connections. And then, of course, to make matters worse, to talk about essential workers uh, and the people who perform this work, very often they are undocumented immigrants. So in your mind, how has the anti-immigration agenda of that last administration and to some extent our current administration exacerbated the crisis? It's worth paying attention to the fact that the burden of COVID fell heavily on Latinx communities and on Black communities. It's worth noting that even leading into COVID, the Trump administration was cracking down in ways that were really quite chilling against individuals who were lawfully seeking asylum in the United States, 
and then cracking down on individuals as they were working in the United States, even in industries that the Trump administration had qualified as essential working places, such as meat packing places. Largely, Latinx um, community members are those that are doing that very dangerous work as Americans uh, consume uh, high rates of chicken and also beef and pork. And the people who are doing that work are black and brown people who already are vulnerable to infection and disease, just given the nature of what that is. But during COVID, they were made to be essential workers, but were not always provided uh, protection, the PPEs, and at the same time had to be worried about ICE crackdowns. The other thing that we saw during that time was children being locked away in cages, Children being snatched from their parents' arms as they came into the United States. These children being denied toothpaste and soap. And the Trump administration making arguments before federal courts that it was in their right to deny these children toothpaste, toothbrushes, and soap. Things that really strike uh, against what we would like to see as the constitutional values of this country, but also the moral values of this country. So the psychological stress and trauma only adds to what we know in terms of the physical stress and trauma that sadly has resulted in the alarming deaths of black and brown children during COVID. Uh, I want to quote you back, if you'll allow, from your paper. You wrote, racism is a pre-existing medical condition that implicates nearly every aspect of healthcare delivery. So um, can you help us think through that pre-existing condition? Absolutely. So racism is a pre-existing health condition in the United States, and it's borne out in many different ways through both implicit biases and also explicit biases. So the explicit biases are those institutional types of systems that have been with us for some time or that we've tried to strike down but were with us. For example, in the United States, there was a long period of time up until just a few decades ago where white clinics and hospitals denied admission to black people, to brown people. We're talking about people literally dying on the steps of hospitals that refused to admit them. Now, for many Americans, that's something that seems shocking, like that didn't occur. Well, in fact, it did occur. Systemic inequality and bias in this way also relates to the eugenics platform that was built into American law. In 1927, the United States Supreme Court upheld a Virginia law that provided for the compulsory sterilization of people that were considered to be unfit. And now this unfitness was interpreted quite broadly. You could be unfit if you were thought to be mentally unfit, morally unfit, physically unfit. But these were carried out against poor white people and then people of color. Wealthy white people never had to worry about being considered unfit and being forcibly and coercively sterilized against their will. And in fact, the test case in the 1927 Supreme Court decision, Buck v. Bell, involved a poor white girl, 16 years old, indigent, basically, but working, who had been raped by her employer's nephew. And she had a child out of wedlock. The state of Virginia rounded her up 
put her at a place that they called the Virginia Colony, which was a place where they sterilized poor white people. So we don't even talk about white supremacy built and baked into white supremacy. And that is to say, in the early part of the 20th century, there were tens of thousands of poor white people who were thought of as unfit white people, white people who did not meet the standard for what whiteness was supposed to be in the United States. Well, the Supreme Court in that case said, rather than to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is one of the most revered justices to ever serve on the Supreme Court, said three generations of imbeciles are enough. He said that the power that the state has to impose vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Later on, these were the kinds of practices that were imposed against black women, against indigenous women, against Latino women. In Mississippi, it was so common that it was called the Mississippi appendectomy, with black girls as young as 10 and 11 and 12 years old being denied any reproductive capacity, being sterilized against their knowledge. And so that we can look at as explicit forms of what one would call racism in medicine, right? This pre-existing condition. But the implicit part of it results from cultural attitudes and stereotypes that have not been sufficiently challenged in our society, where we have not been sufficiently educated against them. I'll give you an example. In 2015 or 16, it was, the University of Virginia conducted a study at its medical school. It was a study to see whether ideas of bias were held by medical students and also uh, those who were residents, medical residents. And these questions included ones that should be easy, such as, do Black people and white people have the same kind of skin density? Do Black people and white people feel pain in the same way? Do Black people and white people basically have the same kind of blood? And what was alarming is that medical students had these false racialized ideas. They thought that black people had thicker skin than white people do, that black people's blood coagulates differently than white people, that black people feel pain differently than white people. These are these kind of social stereotypes and stigmas that then impact healthcare. If you are in deep pain and you go to see a doctor and the doctor looks at you and says, well, you're brown, you're black, you really don't feel pain then you're going to be denied the kind of care and the kind of empathy, basically, from your doctor or your nurse that you deserve. There have now been dozens upon dozens of studies that now show the dangers of these implicit biases, whether it is a patient seeking care because she's having a heart attack, and the stereotype is that Black women uh, just need aspirin when they're showing these kinds of signs and that later lead to their deaths. The Institute of Medicine in the early 2000s investigated over several hundred areas to look at whether Black people and white people receive different care in the United States. And across hundreds of areas, what they saw is that Black people are less likely to receive the quality of care that white people do, virtually on anything that you can imagine. And the only area where they saw Black people were more likely to receive more care than white people was 
with having a limb chopped off, amputations. It's the only area where black people are likely to receive more care than white people. Uh, and that is they're sometimes two to six times more likely to have a limb chopped off than white people are. That's um, super disturbing. If one were to think about the ways in which these institutional and infrastructural inequalities bake out into healthcare, it reminds me of meeting a, a man who was a chef, he was a caterer, and I noticed that he had a limp and I asked him, are you okay? Thinking that perhaps he had just stubbed his foot. He was an older black man. And he said, no, baby, they cut my foot off. And, and I said, oh, why was your foot cut off? And he said, oh, because I have diabetes. Well, that's not the answer to diabetes. It means that there were many other things as part of a domino that didn't get cared for early on. The answer isn't, we'll cut off your foot. The answer happens to be early interventions, early care, so that we don't end up in a situation where someone's foot is being amputated and where that person believes that diabetes means your foot gets cut off. And it is a failure of the social contract when we see that. We are going to pause for a quick word about our sponsor for the show. But when we come back, Professor Goodwin is going to unpack the relationship between reproductive health and the social contract. But first, I want to tell you about BetterHelp, the world's largest therapy service. Have you ever wondered what gets in the way of your happiness or prevents you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp offers a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas, which I know is especially true if you don't live in a large city. You can find licensed professional counselors who are specialized in a wide range of issues from depression, stress, anxiety, to anger and grief, and also from trauma to self-esteem, among others. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and send a message to your counselor anytime. And best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Start living a better life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com hopeful. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com hopeful for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. More now with our guest, Professor Goodwin of the University of California, Irvine, and founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. You wrote a terrific book last year, Policing the Womb, and you deliver a horrifying account of criminalization of all aspects of reproduction, pregnancy, abortion, birth, and motherhood in the United States. It really foreshadowed the Texas abortion ban, SB 8. You saw all of this coming. So for how long have you been seeing this coming? Well, it's been now at least a couple decades that I've seen this coming. And I've said that black and brown women are the canaries in the coal mine. That is to say, the kind of perfect storm that was curated during the Reagan administration, where we saw both the rhetoric about welfare queens, such as the nation's economy is in stress somehow because 
black women have babies, right? There are more white women on welfare than there are black and brown women, right? That was a stereotype, but one that landed in the news. And then there was also the very harmful stereotype of the crack mom and the crack baby. Well, what we know now is that there was so much fiction behind those politicized accounts, but that perfect storm coming together then served to kind of treat medicine as a weapon in many ways against black and brown women. That is to say, women who were pregnant, who wanted to have prenatal care, but who may have used a drug during pregnancy if they were black. They were 10 times more likely than white counterparts who did the same thing to be reported to law enforcement and have their children taken away from them. Ultimately, once you create precedent in these ways, where like in the state of Wisconsin, they created the euphemistic crack baby mama law that provided for the civil confinement of a person for the protection of her fetus, right? Well, it started off with this being targeted at black women, but once you actually bake these kinds of things into law, they can harm anybody. Or in states where the earliest instances of it criminalizing a miscarriage or criminalizing a stillbirth, yes, happened against black women such as Regina McKnight. She had a stillbirth. She was prosecuted for her stillbirth. Uh, she took a plea deal. It was 20 years, reduced to nine, and eventually she got out. But this was for a stillbirth which was never proven to be connected to the fact that she had used drugs during her pregnancy. Or Renee Gibbs, a 15-year-old in Mississippi charged with depraved heart murder for having a stillbirth. But when you create these kinds of prosecutions and coerce women into plea deals that are lengthy, harmful sentences, then it creates a platform to be done against anybody at some point in the future. Or like the Medical University of South Carolina that specifically lured in Black women to receive prenatal care, specifically targeting those who had had some prior history or use of drugs working with police and prosecutors to get them prosecuted and then to see, read the transcripts of the horrible stories of women literally being dragged out of the hospital in shackles and chains, in bloodied gowns, some to later give birth in prison toilets and on concrete floors, and some to give birth at the Medical University of South Carolina while shackled, and then to find that even though there were white women who had used drugs, in fact, used crack under this regime, it was only black women who were arrested, with the exception of one white woman out of dozens. And on that one white woman's medical chart, a nurse wrote, lives with Negro boyfriend. And so we saw during the 80s and 90s, very deliberate racialized ways of targeting folks. But what I saw during the 2000s was that once you establish legal precedent to do these things, to track, to target, to reduce the constitutional capacities of women to zero, to wage a war where in fact one weaponizes embryos and fetuses with constitutional rights and deny those same to women, that one day that would affect all women including white women. And that's exactly what we see across the country right now. And it's exactly what we see in the state of Texas. 
I, I really feel like conversations about reproductive rights are social contract conversations. But in a way, I feel like actually it's been stood on its head. You know, it's been weaponized against women. Yes. Well, when we think about a social contract, we think about, well, what do we owe to our fellow members in a society? And what does our society owe back to us? In the simplest ways, we might think about it that our tax dollars, whether it's because we bought a candy bar and there's tax associated with that or the income tax that we provide to the government, that this secures certain things for us. It means that if our home catch fire, that there are firefighters that come to put it out. It also means that we have a certain moral compass in our society, too, such as the people who are most vulnerable are able to be cared for in our society. And they're able to be housed in our society, that they're able to receive food in our society, and they're able to receive a health care as well in our society. We think that that is important. We do far less than many other countries. But that's part of the social contract. Well, our social contract is quite frayed. And when you think about the social contract and that its connection to reproductive health rights and justice, well, it raises very significant questions, doesn't it? So when a state like Texas or Mississippi or Alabama or others coerce individuals into carrying pregnancies that they would prefer not to carry uh, to term or they would prefer to have easy access to contraception or to be able to terminate those pregnancies, when the state then forces them into those lives that they don't want, you would imagine that the state then provides every means possible to help take care of the children that are born from those situations and to help take care of the families. Well, it turns out there's punishment on that side. There are welfare reform policies right now that deny added care uh, if a woman becomes pregnant while she is on welfare. That's taking place in the state of Texas. Texas has also refused to expand Medicaid, which then relates to physical health and mental health, too. And so what we see is this kind of passion around embryos and fetuses, but without substantive care by the state to make sure that people can have healthy lives after they happen to be born. And in fact, while I was writing Policing the Womb, I came across just shocking information from the state and federal government. I had no idea, for example, that even decoration on cake happens to be policed through welfare, such as a woman cannot purchase a cake for her child, let's say for a birthday, if it has too much sprinkle <laughs> on it. There is a, has to be a kind of ratio, cake to sprinkles and toppings, right? That kind of punitive engagement by the state shows a real disregard and shows actually a bit of cruelty. So you're a law professor. What role can the law play in repairing the social contract and make it more equitable for everyday people? And then by extension, what can everyday people do to make change in this? So let me start with what everyday people can do. Everyday people can register to vote. And I realize and I appreciate that we've also made it very difficult for people to be able to vote in our country. I'm alarmed by that. That is another failure of the social contract. It's a failure of the enforcement of the Constitution. And yet at the same time, voting is so important. And it's exactly why we see some of these kind of voter suppression efforts taking place. It's through voting where we're 
able to exercise this important right of our citizenship. It allows us to elect people, not just for the presidency or the Senate or the House of Representatives, but for your local school board, uh, for the local offices that matter so much. If you want to make sure that your child receives a robust education, an education that recognizes the humanity and values and contributions of indigenous people, of Asian people to our country, of Latinos and African-Americans to this country, well then voting and voting to make sure you put in people in school boards that matter to you, then that's critically important. The other issue that you raised is one about law and what can we do in law. Well, I will start by saying one of the things that's so alarming right now, we have three branches of government, our judiciary, uh, we have our executive, and we have our legislatures. One branch of the government, our courts, um, it's sad to report that today Americans are deeply skeptical about our courts, whether our courts happen to be fair, whether they will treat people equally, whether we can count on our courts to uphold justice. And that's because even the process of electing people who will serve on our courts has become so deeply politicized. Let me just say this as one example. In 1973, the case Roe v. Wade struck down criminal abortion laws. By today's accounting, people would think that those were radical communists or socialists who happened to be on the court. 1973, Roe v. Wade was not a close decision. It was a seven to two decision. Of those seven justices, five were Republican appointed. The person who wrote the opinion for the court, Justice Blackmun, was appointed to the court by Richard Nixon. 1992, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the case that upheld Roe v. Wade was a case where two justices played a significant role, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, both Republican appointed. The reason why I mention that is that that was a norm of the day. Today, it's vastly different what our courts look like and what it means to be Republican appointed to the court doesn't look like that anymore. So the politicization of the court is something that I think we should all keep an eye on. But in terms of what can happen in law, well, that's through the legislature and also through the executive powers of our governors and the president to set things right. And the other thing is that at the legislative levels, state legislature and also federal legislature, there can be far more aggressive means taking place to protect children, to protect families, to make sure that we actually live up to the values of our Constitution. One problem is that at the federal level with our legislature, work is stymied. It's been very, very difficult since the Obama administration to try to get progressive policies through Congress that would help Americans out. But it's, it's the place to be, and that's why voting really makes a difference to in elect individuals who will go to Congress to fight for the rights of the most vulnerable in our society. Here's my final question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? 
That is such a great question. Thank you so much for asking it because I think silver linings matter. So the silver linings that matter that we have more women in office than we ever had before. It's still alarming that the United States ranks somewhere around 70th on the World Economic Forum in terms of women's representation in federal office, right? There are more women in federal office in Rwanda, a former war-torn country where there was genocide than there is in the United States. But that aside, we now have more women in the Senate and more women in the House of Representatives than we ever have had before. We also have more women serving on the bench as well, and we have more LGBTQ folks who are also serving in those branches of government than we ever did before and at local levels. And so that gives me hope. Something else that gives me hope as well is that we have more young people articulating about things that matter to all of us, such as the environment. And we've also seen movements afoot. Uh, It's sad that we've had to have these movements, but we have a Me Too movement. We have a racial reckoning that is taking place. We see greater, during this period of time, articulations about violence against Asian American communities, and so people speaking up against that. That is wonderful. And finally, let me say that it is is really hopeful to see mayors fighting for immigrant communities and saying, we will protect the people who live in our cities. We will establish sanctuary cities and we will figure this out. That is very hopeful, uh, in my opinion. And I think we need to see more of all of that. Here, here. Professor Michelle Goodwin is the Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, and founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She also hosts a podcast on the issues at Ms. Magazine. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be with you. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, we're tackling some awkward moments we've all had. The moment when someone, a friend, a colleague, a family member, says something that is simply not based in fact. Specifically, something that denies scientific consensus. And I'm thinking anti-vax, climate denial, or even flat earth beliefs. Our guest, Lee McIntyre, says it's your responsibility as part of the social contract to engage and not to walk away or move on. We'll be talking about Lee's new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, next time on Future Hindsight. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, Reva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.